0: like the congregation to please stand for the reading of the word of god this is how paul closes his letter to the galatians almost See with what large letters I'm writing with you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they might boast in your flesh. But far be it for me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Brothers and sisters, all flesh is grass, and the beauty of that grass is like the flower of a field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this, the word of our God, endures. Have a seat. So we've been working through this letter that the Apostle Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia, the region that is now considered central Turkey. The gospel of the kingdom, which had first been proclaimed by Jesus during his earthly ministry, had given birth to the ecclesia, the gathering of Jesus' followers, which had grown from a collection of Jesus' personal disciples to then a collection in Paul's day of Jesus' communities scattered throughout the Mediterranean. Paul, however, was not one of Jesus' disciples, at least not in the flesh. In the early days of the church's movement out from Jerusalem, Paul was actually a persecutor of the church. The book of Acts says that he was breathing murderous threats against the church. He he was basically a bounty hunter who sought to bring in Jesus' followers bound and tied to the leaders of Jerusalem. It was on such a mission to Damascus that something happened that Paul didn't expect. He met Jesus. It, It would be like, for you Star Wars fans, it would be like if Boba Fett suddenly joined the rebellion the dramatic nature of Paul's conversion changed the course of human history, for it was through Paul, perhaps more than anyone else, that the gospel of the kingdom first reached the Gentile communities. The good news that came out of Jerusalem Concerning Jesus was spread by Paul throughout the Mediterranean and was then given to others who would spread it around the world and then on and on and on, eventually reaching this room this evening. Now we've spent the last six Sundays walking through this Galatian letter, and we're hearing, we're listening to the voice of a man who is tearfully angry. And passionately concerned that these Galatian followers of Jesus would believe and then subsequently teach others to believe a distorted gospel. One that is more about religion than faith. One that is more about the faithfulness of men and women to follow rules rather than the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah to the, to the messianic mission. Of course, Jesus and subsequently Paul have teaching on how we should live this new uh, this new life of freedom in Christ under grace, but those actions those actions are all responses to God's love and mercy towards us. Us, you see, when I love my neighbor as myself, what that really is is a reflection of God's love off of me, because I first love. I love because he first loved me. The faith that we live out is a result of the faithfulness of Jesus' role as Israel's representative Messiah. Israel, as you recall, was, was God's rescue mission to save the world. Jesus was the climax of that story. God had promised Father Abraham that he was going to bless entire world through abraham's offspring and jesus is how he got the job done so paul spends the galatian letter unpacking these truths and then he lands as we saw last week on this epic statement comparing the sins of the flesh with the fruit of the spirit paul says look the sins of the flesh are evident sexual immorality Impurity, sensuality, sensuality essentially meant lust without love, idolatry, uh, sorcery, uh, not meaning like reading Harry Potter novels, sorcery meaning going to something else other than God for power, enmity, hostility, bullying, looking for fights, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and the drunkenness, orgies, things like these. You see, There are just some things that you know are wrong. There are just some areas where you can feel the evil. And Paul is attempting a list that will elicit an emotional response from this community that he's passionately pouring his heart out to. If Paul was writing today, he might say, hey, look, the sins of the flesh are evident. Look in the streets. Racism. Sexism, oppression, lust, pornography, sexual harassment, greed, power grabbing, apathy towards the poor, environmental destruction, broken marriages, broken neighborhoods, gang violence, domestic violence, human trafficking, people without a home, and the hard hearts of men and women like you and me who only care so much. The sins of the flesh are evident Evident, they are apparent, they are plainly recognized. No one should have to tell us that those things are a path away from life. Taste their fruit. What do they produce? They produce what? Brief pleasure, numbness, the ability to get your own way. Maybe it's your own desire to sit in God's chair and you say, You know what, God? I want to tell you what is and isn't sin. Maybe that is what you want. Maybe you want that authority. Because as long as I can define sin for myself, I can conveniently overlook certain actions and behaviors that I should probably address, confess, and redress. To sin means to miss the mark. And we have to remind ourselves that it is God who made that mark in the first place because this is His World And friends, the truth is that this world is bathed in sin. We sin so often that we use sin to cover up sin. And we get to the point where we feel like there is nowhere to turn because we just assume that this is just the way the world works. Some in church history have called this total depravity, which is kind of a bit misleading term. Because the term "total depravity" implies that humanity is utterly depraved of all goodness. It desi- denies the truth that each of us were created in the Imago day and, and therefore have value and worth. So a response to this criticism, in response to this criticism, some have preferred to use the phrase instead, "radical corruption." This is a good way of thinking about the effect that sin has on humanity. Radical comes from the the Latin radix, meaning root. So here we are, human beings of value and worth, who have been corrupted at the core of our beings with sinfulness. There is no aspect of ourselves that is not corrupted by sin. And I realize that that is offensive to our ears See, we want to hear that human beings are basically good and that God should learn to live with our imperfections, but that's not the truth. The truth is that sin has infected the core of my being. And the only thing powerful enough to destroy that sin from the inside out is the thing that can save me from the death that is the result of that corruption. So, Here's the thing about sin God is furious over it. Why? Because God's a spoil sport? Because God doesn't want us to have fun? No, God is furious over sin because sin separates us from Him. It hurts the world that he created. It hurts the people that he loves, namely you and I. Sin misses the mark of how a human being was actually supposed to live a life. Sin is poison that has infected and corrupted our very existence. If my sons were being poisoned by something or someone, I would be a bad father if I wasn't furious over that. If God wasn't furious over sin, he would be a bad God. I think that there are times when we think about God's anger towards sin as like God's anger towards us, and we get consumed with that. And I don't want to deny that there are certain times when God's anger is directed towards us, but what we have to remember that it is only under the umbrella of God's radical, sacrificial love expressed to us. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What is the truth? Well, Jesus says that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus came that you might have life and have it abundantly. And when he says abundant life, he means real life. He means kingdom life. He means an eternal life. A life to the full, to the max. A life worth pursuing. A life that lives in anticipation of the reunification of heaven and earth itself. That is what sin stands in the way of. You know, I think it's a good thing that we see the systemic and widespread manifestations of sin in our day and feel a holy discontent to want to do something about it. I think that one of the most important tasks of the church is to stand in solidarity with the broken and stand in opposition to injustice. But may we never lose sight of the fact that all sin begins on a personal level. Paul tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Are you heartbroken over the fact that 68 million people have been displaced worldwide? Are you furious over the fact that 1 in 10 people lack access right now to clean drinking water worldwide? Are you broken each time you hear another news story of another homicide on the streets of our city? Everything in me wants to tell you that we should be lamenting those things and taking bold steps against against them. But friends, it is so very vital that we see that any sort of systemic injustice begins with personal sin. And it's that personal sin that needs to be dealt with by the only thing powerful enough to take it down and declare victory over it for good, God's sacrificial love. Paul says, yeah, the sins of the flesh are evident, but there is another way, a way empowered by the sanctifying power of Jesus' Holy Spirit in the direction of God's kingdom. This is a way, marked by love, by joy, by peace, by patience, and kindness and goodness, faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Paul says, against such things there is no law. In other words, follow the master in a life of discipleship. Go out of your way towards such things. The sins of the flesh may be evident, but that doesn't mean that you have to wallow in them. See, if you have fallen for this lie, that says that you have to live in sin because that's just the way the world is, then Good Friday is for you. The story that we commemorate on Good Friday is one that sticks with us all year long. The story that begins with a child in a manger on Christmas Eve. It's the same story that sees that life extinguished on a cross on Good Friday. This is the story that Paul leans into as he closes his letter to the Galatian Christ followers. It's possible, up until this point in the letter, that Paul had been dictating his words through a scribe. That was common practice in the day, especially if Paul had challenges with his eyesight, as many believe that he did. But now, in these final verses, it's possible that he takes the pen in hand himself and makes sure that his closing words are now in his own handwriting because he wants to make it crystal clear to this church community that it lost its way. Let me read it again. See what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. They're exploiting you. They're bullies. They're religious bullies. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Two fascinating phrases in that last verse. First, there's this concept that Paul would not wish to boast in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, the word translated boast here in Galatians is most often translated glory. The King James and the RSV and others actually do use the word glory there. But to glory in something means to give it like exalted praise, honor, distinction uh, something shown glory would would be made an object of pride a, an asset something seen as illustrious or resplendent in beauty and magnificence paul is giving glory to jesus's crucifixion on a first century means of torturous execution the cross was what Romans used to tell people. The cross was what Romans used to tell people that they were in charge. It wasn't just a means of torturous execution. It was a shameful, humiliating experience just to watch. It was done on hills and in public places that showed others this is what happens when you challenge our authority. Turn with me to Matthew. Twenty-seven, And let's consider some, uh, one of the Gospels' um, perspective on the crucifixion. Matthew 27, started in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him, twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his robe and they put on his own clothes and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry the cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them, casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross." So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from that cross. Then we'll believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lamash Abakhtani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man, he's calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Why on earth would Paul want to boast in that? Years ago, Grace Fellowship hosted a lobby art exhibit with crosses in various states of bloodiness. I remember that the point of the exhibit was supposed to be that it was, it was supposed to be daunting, but one particular display had to be removed before Sunday morning because it was so disturbing. The cross itself was made to look like it was either covered in or made of human bloody flesh. Fifteen years ago, I can't believe it's been 15 years, Mel Gibson released a film focusing on the crucifixion called The Passion of the Christ, the film was controversial for several reasons, but, but many folks, especially in the secular media, they wanted to know why we needed to film that gory. I mean, wasn't this supposed to be a Christian film? Did we really need to see the flesh ripped from his side? Did we really need to see the crown of thorns sink into his head? Did we really need to see the blood drip down his face and the nails being driven in his hands and his feet? There is no way around it, friends, whether you're reading a text or viewing a piece of art or even watching it in film, the crucifixion is most definitely a gruesome scene. There's no way for it not to be a gruesome scene because it was a gruesome scene and we would do well to speak honestly about its offensiveness. Other than those who experienced it, perhaps it was most disturbing to those uh, who watched it Or at least we're familiar enough with the way that Rome dealt with troublemakers. Still, the cross, it it became a central component of Christianity. Cyril of Jerusalem, speaking in the fourth century, said that every deed of Christ is a cause of glorying to the universal church, but her greatest glory, her greatest of all glorying, is in the cross. He said, Jesus stretched out his hands on the cross, that he might embrace the ends of the world. For this Golgotha is the very center of the earth. And this continues to a great degree even in our day. I'm sure that many of you tonight are wearing crosses around your neck right now. Maybe you have a tattoo of a cross or a, a t shirt that boasts about it. For those of us who follow Jesus and place him at the center of our lives, we must place the cross at the center of our faith. On the cross, we believe that Jesus suffered and died not not merely a martyr's death, but the death of a sacrificial lamb who died for the sins of the world. What did God do when he was so furious over that sin that we talked about earlier? He put on flesh and he died a sacrificial death. The gruesome, offensive nature of the cross shows us just how serious Jesus was of defeating sin. In the old covenant with Israel, sins were dealt with or atoned for through animal sacrifice in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. This seems odd to us, but for for ancient Israel, it was a powerful symbol of taking something that had value and sacrificing it for the sake of restoration. This was supposed to compel the atoned to reflect the mercy they received back into the world, but often people just use the temple system as a means to do selfish personal business with God, even at the expense of others. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1. Right at the beginning of Isaiah, actually starting at verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ha, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Skip down to verse 12. When you come and appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? "'Bring no more vain offerings. "'Incense is an abomination to me. "'New moon and and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. "'I can't endure iniquity and solemn assembly. "'Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. "'They have become a burden to me. "'I am weary of burying them.' When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make my many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. So what's he saying here? Your religion is tiresome. It's become transactional rather than relational. You want to understand true religion? Cease doing evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Help the fatherless. Stand with the widow. For too long you have used your religion as a means to get right with God on your own terms. No more Continuing on in, in verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword." For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, the concept that we could be white as snow must seem far-fetched to a world like ours that has become radically corrupted with sin. But that's exactly what our Father desires for us. Our Father desires holiness for us. He desires us to be white as snow He desires righteousness for us. The problem is that holiness and righteousness come only from holiness and righteousness, not from the radically corrupt. So God did in Jesus what we couldn't do for ourselves. He put on flesh. He lived a righteous life. And he became the sacrificial lamb. Declaring victory over sin and death once and for all, he then calls us to live out a cruciform life, a life formed by the cross as we seek justice and peace for the sake of our world. Earlier in Galatians, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Writing to the church in Corinth, Paul says, and I, when I came to you brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Perhaps Paul's most remarkable words regarding the cross comes from Philippians 2 where he begs the church in Philippi to use the cross to use the sacrifice of Jesus as a model for sacrificial love towards others one more Bible turn to Philippians chapter 2 this might be my favorite verse of, uh, passage in the Bible Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this minded among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. Friends, those words have attempted to say just how important the events of Jesus' crucifixion is to the story of all things. But if they merely allow us an intellectual ascent of knowledge, we have not scratched the surface of the reality of the situation. Head knowledge, it's transactional, it's not relational. A teacher teaches something and the class learns it. But the gospel of the kingdom is relational. And it's that relationship that's going to change the world. It's when we have that relationship, boasting in nothing but the cross and forming our lives in such a way um, that we pour ourselves out into others, that we form our lives in a way of sacrifice and humility. That is when we are able to do the work of the kingdom. That's when we are able to participate in the healing of things that are broken. And that's when we're able to stand for real injustice in Christ. My prayer for us at New Hope is that the cross would not merely be informative transaction, but formative in the way that we do life, and the way that we do ministry. The way we participate in the things that the church has always participated in. Things like communion. We're going to take communion now, the Mass, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, and our communion table at New Hope is open to all who confess Jesus is Lord, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. If you're not there yet, if you haven't yet made the decision to follow Christ, you need to know that you are welcome here. You need to know that we love you. And we want you to think of new hope as a place where you can come not having to hide your doubts or your questions. When we take communion, you shouldn't feel obligated to participate. Feel free to just have a few moments of silence in your seat, thinking about the things that we discuss. But I will add this. The communion is one of two sacraments that Jesus instituted. The other being baptism. Baptism is a public declaration of your faith. Remember, your faith Is certainly called to be personal, but it was never called to be private. We might say that while communion sustains your faith, baptism proclaims it. So if you decide to come forward for communion and you haven't yet been baptized, that's okay, but I'll ask you to consider coming to me later to discuss the possibility of making a public declaration of your faith uh, soon. In fact, we're going to, I'm happy to announce, we're actually going to have a baptism this summer. And maybe right now, on this Good Friday, maybe it's you that want, you want to make a declaration of your intention to be baptized. So please come to me after the service. I'd love to talk to you about it. Um, the bread is unleavened. The red is wine, and the white is grape juice. And after coming forward, I will ask you to take the elements back to your seat, where we'll take them together. First, though, would you please stand and join as churches throughout the centuries have done in the reading of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God,